I got to say, like, there are these, um, these benefit, these big benefits that are obvious to everyone on doing a podcast. But for me, one of the, like the number one is to learn new things. Mm-hmm. And I record by learning live. Sometimes I uh, prove that how, how little I know, which is kind of embarrassing and humbling, but this is where I have the most fun. And um, welcome to GTM Unfiltered, hosted by GTM veterans, Judge Borko, Craig Rosenberg, and Matt Amundsen. We make talking business fun and sometimes funny. That's because we're always unscripted, unfiltered, and unlike anything else out there. Get ready. I just, I'm very excited for uh, today's guest who I would say there was this moment in time, like what, 2009 to 2011 when social was really bursting on the scene and, um, you know, this whole new crop of influencers came out of the the movement and like it's funny today lauren because people are trying to explain me influencers and i'm just going wait a minute there was you know like it it was i just think back to all these things that happened back then and one of those was like social really allowed for some democratization on and you know analysts and people that look at markets and got them out there and you were one of them with your time at radiant six which was like when I first saw your brain power and then um, you continue to go through um, almost like what would I saw now, the new like community uh, path, right? With Aetna mm-hmm. and Fidelity. And then here's the thing, everyone on the, on the intro. So for, so now she's got so many pieces of like educational work and experience and learn, you know, learning on her side that it's, it's hard to keep up. There's like 26 uh, different things going on in her world. Like when I was first trying to catch up to get ready at what my first meeting with uh, our guest, I was like, Oh my gosh, she's doing everything. So I may have to help you sort it out. But the first thing I want to do is say, you're at the university of Leicester. Is that pronounced correctly? Leicester. I'm an honorary research. Yeah, honorary research fellow there. Yeah, it's okay. Oh, it's okay. God. It's a common mistake. I did that too, even before I I went there. I felt so awkward. So yeah, I I totally did that. You know, at the time I knew you were in North America. Now you're in Europe. Now you're doing um, amazing stuff around a lot of things with that we're going to talk about today. Things that I don't even think you know I have conversations about. So we'll go do that. And one of the things you do do is for you know you work with. Uh, museums and other folks to get them digitally literate as well as the work that you're doing for basically any kind of organization around these types of topics that we're about to go have, right? Um, And so I just, I'm really excited today to have Lauren Vargas with us. Lauren, thanks for coming on. And like, you have so much background that it was impossible to put together the intro but I'm very excited to see. And, and so anyway, oh, by the way, last thing. So, you know, years ago, hearing a lot from Lauren and then, uh, you know, I was like, I saw you come on, I think with Esteban, I'm like, mm-hmm. oh my gosh. And I wrote to Esteban, I said, I got to talk to Lauren. So everyone, Lauren Vargas, Lauren, thanks for coming. Thank you for having me on. I'm excited about the conversation. Yeah, well, a lot of people say, hey, Craig, next time we're just going to come on and you can do the intro for me and make me feel really good. And then we can yeah. just maybe for a minute and get out of there. Well, the first thing, so there, I have all these new terms that I, you know, when we were talking and looking at what you're doing and things that are happening in the world, but like if you, the f- one thing I like to start the conversation with is 
you know, is there something where the market or the, you know, uh, well, let's just say like the market, which allows me to have some flexibility and use some flexibility that they think is they're doing right or things are, are normal or a best practice or a way to work. Um, and they're actually, they're not thinking about the right way, or I, I like to say they're wrong. And, you know, what is that and what should they go be doing about that? That's how I like to start things. Microphone to you. Excellent. Well, I always like to say, you know, maybe not doing it wrong, but there's room for improvement, right? There's room for growth. Um, uh, always continuously learning. Uh, that's kind of my mantra. Um, I, I think there is this common misnomer that the role of a futurist, the role of strategic foresight belongs to the precious few, the one person or the, the small team that is responsible for that entire organization's uh, goals, objectives, and strategy. And that's just not accurate. Um, that particular capacity, that capability, that skill set, that tool set, that mindset, that heart set is something that belongs to every single person. And so I, I'm really, uh, I really advocate for people to explore and, and figure out ways in which they can bring others along on a collective imagination um, process. And, and I, I truly believe that's something that belongs to everyone. So, uh, yeah. I knew we were going to talk about this. It's incredible. <laughs> it's so much more high level than what I'm talking about. So is this when we're talking about futures literacy or future literacy? Yeah, futures literacy. Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, so first, like when we're talking about the term future or futurist mm -hmm. or futurism or whatever that might be, what, what, do we, what do we mean there? We're really talking about the actions of, of sensing and sense making. So it's about... How are, how are we scanning our horizon? How are we looking to see what is changing, why it's changing? Um, how has it changed over time? And how can we then begin to better understand those, those, those signals, those trends, those drivers and those forces and begin to shape those into narratives that help us explore alternative futures so that we can then use that information to then help us as organizations, projects, teams begin to better assess what is our readiness for these various futures? Where might we take agency in helping shape a preferred future? How might we actually take steps today in order to prepare ourselves for that readiness? And so right. it's really taking this, uh, this cyclical approach to um, scanning the environment, learning from the environment, uh, bringing that back into the organization, bringing that back to your team, your project, and really understanding what that means from a readiness level so that you can make de decisions today that inform the future. Yeah, amazing. What, um, so this circular sort of look in, you know, you know, it sounds like you mean like uh, how an organization might continuously Correct. Uh, do this. But look, so if there's, if you had an example in your head of, you don't have to name names if you don't want to, of, of an organization that's doing this really well, like what are they doing? Well, they are, they are collectively not belonging to any one person or any one right. team. That, they're, they're scanning, they're scanning the environment. What are those signals of change? So they're probably asking, you know, what is the future of X? 
Um, what is, you know, what might we be prepared for? What does our what does our audience of the future look like? What do, you know, our what does service look like? Um, so it's really understanding what that question is or or where you might want to, you know, begin to explore. And then yeah. it is looking across the horizon and looking for those signals of change, right? Those things that are happening today. So it's understanding maybe it's a report, maybe it's um, uh, a news article, a case study, an observation, a behavior. And it's a determining with others, doing that sensing and sense making together, where is that a weak signal? Is that a strong signal? Do we see multiple instances of this particular um, in piece of information? What what trend, what drivers, what forces are influencing this particular piece of information or this movement, this behavior? And you're doing that work together. And it's not something that, you know, can be done, you know, kind of a one-off exercise. It's something that is a continuous part of the dialogue, a continuous part of the reflection of your yeah. organization, of your team. So that's the place that you would start. And I see a lot yeah. of organizations kind of either, uh, you know, hand that off to a particular person or team, or they go right. to, you know, a set of consultants and say, hey, um, tell us what we should be thinking. Tell us what the future is, rather than doing the work themselves of understanding what those signals are and using yeah. that intelligence to then begin to map their own intelligence on top of it. Right. So that's where you start. Okay, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay, not so end. I can see why you do a lot of work. Yeah, yeah. It, but it, and one of the things that I think is important is that you're, you know, what you're advocating for is sort of everyone in the organization takes this mm -hmm. mentality, and all the various people and organizations are looking to the future here, and and always sort of. Uh, doing that research on what's happening. But I will say, as you were talking, I'm going like, particularly now for uh, sales and marketing organizations. So in the go to market, I'm just going, well, yep. uh, that sounds like we should always be doing that. Like I'm just isolating. Mm -hmm. And I know you're talking about sort of organizational wide, but like, that sounds like something we should always be on top of and actually leverage in order for us to be the of sort course. of leaders of this. Um, and that was, I mean, as I sort of think through what you're saying, I'm like, well, that this is important for everyone to, to embrace, but I live in the world of sales and marketing. So if you were uh, advising a CMO and you wanted them to, to work in this way, like what, uh, you know, I get the mentality thing that I think is really important and kind of fun. Um, but like, you know, how are there actions they should take? Like, is it the way they engage? going forward or is there like a continuous meeting cycle where people bring these trends to the table or how, what does that look like? I think you have to find out what is the right thing for your culture, right? For, for, for your dynamic. So it could be a small team, an organization. Maybe you're doing this with your peers across, you know, a sector. Um, what it really comes down to is, okay, actively seek out those signals and come together and reflect. That might that might be in physical meetings. It might be an asynchronous conversation. It may be right. something that you build on top of. Um, but, you know, gathering those signals is just the first step. That's the sensing part. And anybody can do that at any time. It's the sense making that needs a bit more routine, right? Where you need to figure out what is that rhythm? What's that pulse 
um, of, of, of that sense making, that collective imagination. So that means how do we take these signals? How do we better understand these trends and these drivers? And we start to build narratives or we immerse ourselves in what that potential or alternate future might look like, might feel like. And so, especially from a sales marketing perspective, you have to be on top of this. This is something that sounds common sense, but it's not necessarily commonly practiced, right? Or it's something that is done as part of a report and then it goes on a digital shelf to die, you know, and um, exactly. And it's not, it's not that type of one-off approach. Um, And to, to really make sense of those signals, you have to find a way for people to collectively envision themselves, themselves, right? To have some type of skin in the game in that future. And that takes, that takes different, you know, types of skill. It could be that you do some type of design fiction exercise where you're actually using tangible items to create maybe a prototype of something that you're going to use in the future or, uh, what you know, a future office is going to look like, or a sales experience, or some type of marketing experience. Um, it could be that you are using speculative fiction, right, to kind of weave a story so that collectively you you can share um, and this this understanding of what the future might be, and start to develop a common language for how to visualize this future before you even come to the conversation of, well, if this future were to become a reality, well, one, do we want it to become a reality? Do we have any agency to change this? If so, what do we need to start doing? How do we need to start preparing ourselves? How do we understand, engage our readiness in order to either anticipate and take agency of that future? And so that's where the readiness comes in. Our strategic plans, right? A lot of times I've been in so many strategy conversations and very long term, um, you know, strategic planning discussions where they're building a five year or 10 year strategic plan. Um, And so much is done in the past, right? They're taking all of this information from the past and they're making decisions from the present about things that are happening in the future rather than how do we better understand? Yeah, we do need to have an understanding of what has happened in the past but not, not so exclusively. We have yeah. to be able to, to start to you know, think forward and what does that entail? And that's a skill set. Yeah, <laughs> that definitely is. But that's a perfect, uh, that's a perfect example. The 10-year plan is, rare, is rarely made with um, some kind of leap of faith or imagination about how things will change and the directions things are going. And you could also argue, yeah, I mean, I, maybe we don't know the insides of some of these organizations that have been one step ahead of the change. But, uh, you know, I could imagine that, uh, well, I guess I could imagine that someone in the organization was in charge of looking at the future there. So uh, so I was very happy to these phrases that I, I'm, I'm learning from you that I picked. So futures literacy. Now, did you say design fiction? Design fiction, yes. Okay, now yeah. there's one. Okay, Matt, who's my other host, design fiction. How about that? I have a podcast where we were talking about design fiction. Okay, what do you mean by uh, You gave a little bit of an explanation, but just blow it out for me because it's a new phrase and I'm just so excited to. I, I mean, honestly, I may misuse it, but I'm going to use it a lot now. So, um, well, yeah, tell us about it. 
it's it's different than speculative fiction where you're working with scenarios or narratives really to to kind of communicate that that potential future. So design fiction is where you're taking something from you're, you're designing something from the future. So it could be okay, let's say I work with a lot of cultural organizations and there are some 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 artifacts uh that are fairly standard. So like When's the last time you visited a museum? You probably had some type of audio guide or, you know, whether it was on your phone or something that they gave to you. In a design fiction exercise, if I were working with a, a museum on their digital transformation, right, and and thinking about how they might prepare um, and really, you know, start to think about the audience of the future, then it might be something like, okay, let's completely reimagine Let's rethink, let's reframe the audio guide. And so we're actually going to prototype what this looks like. And we're going to immerse ourselves into this world where this device or this thing, whatever we create is going to be used. It could be that you're working, you know, even at a grander scale where you're doing, you know, what does the city of the future look like? What does the organization of the future look like? And you create a space in which you are completely immersed in the elements of that future. Now, that doesn't mean that you've got all those, you know, we're not going all Jetsons here, you know, it's not like, you know, <laughs> you know, the, uh, you know, we're not flying, you know, in, you know, right. flying cars or whatnot, but it is, how do we take what is surrounding us, what we, what we call the future mundane, those really simple things that are part of our everyday environment that we really don't give a lot of credence to, um, or yeah. really, you know, actively notice that we fill that space or we reimagine them in different ways. And that helps us step into that future and better understand, okay, this is how it would feel. This is how we might simulate, you know, this particular behavior, motivation, experience. And so I use design fiction very sparingly because it, you know, it can be overused. And, you know, sometimes oh, you, know, you have yeah. to be truly in the right mindset and have enough space and time to do that. I, you know, I generally, uh, you know, kind of start with speculative fiction as kind of a way in uh, to help visualize the experience. Um, but but those types of, of work of sense making, it's all about how do you immerse yourself in those alternate futures? Because just talking about the signals, just talking about what, it, you know, what it might be without actually really feeling it with all of your senses is is a very different is a very different endeavor i'm using it okay wait really quick you know i was as you were talking i had all these terms i was getting but i i had been wanting to ask you so you're like the one of the ogs of com, let's just use the word blanket gives us both space community okay. yeah yeah and um so where are we now um, on community. So if you think about, I mean, it was like, you know, I don't know, there was a million things, as you know, that we could go talk about, but there was one, I'm like, all right, I got to make sure I get this in here in 30 minutes. So let, let, let's just pivot or maybe not pivot. Maybe they're connected, but like from the time, you know, of Radiant 6 to now, what, where are we in community and where are we going? Oh, that's a great question. You know, my my co-host on 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 the Cohere podcast, uh, Bill Johnston, uh, had a great post that he published last year on the different kind of cycles of community development, and um, we are definitely moving away from obviously the, the kind of social media era of 
community, but that was always, there was always such a kind of a, a clash between social media management and community management. Those two are, are not the same. Um, they were used interchangeably quite a bit. Um, you know, it's, it's, I do get a bit frustrated, um, that the community space, the, 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 I can't call it a sector because it's not. It's not an official kind of, I mean, I think of it as a profession, but we're not organized, you know, as a, an official profession. Um, there's very little curriculum, you know, around. Um, training is sometimes relegated to platforms um, when it comes to uh, community management. There just hasn't been a lot of forward growth as as a synchronized, as a centralized profession. Is that good? Is that bad? Maybe somewhere in between. Um, but I, I have really hesitated in the past, especially in the past, I don't know, seven, 10 years in using the word community and how I, and how I talk about what I do because it's so overused yeah. and not a lot has changed, right? A lot of, <laughs> I do find it sometimes I do find it a little hilarious. I go into, community manager spaces and they're having the exact same conversations that we had you know yeah. in kind of like you know in the dawn of of well in this last kind of era or or community management growth period so early 2000s and and i also see you know you called me an og uh but <laughs> most most community folks would have no idea who i am none yeah because they're they're not looking to the past to help inform the future, right? They're not they're not giving credence to the work that has been done. And I stood on the shoulders of giants, so you know it wasn't like I was the first on the block. Right. So yeah, I think you know we're we're, we're moving into I think more decentralized communities. I think we need to have more care um, in in the way that we hold space together, and I think that takes a different type of tool set, skill set, mindset. Um, and I think some, some intention, um, in, in how we hold that space and how we think of stewardship, community stewardship, rather than like a management moderation type of view. Sorry, that was a long response. I could probably like, that's, that's a, that hurts sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah. You know, I was agreeing the whole way. I, I'm like sitting there going, God, we sort of, uh, communities just, oh my gosh, what is my, did you see the? Yeah, I did. Up? You've got a little I, thumbs up. Go, go for it. For the producer. Um, how in many ways, it, it's actually a strategic point of view is community. And we yeah. oftentimes think about it as this thing that we do it often the mm -hmm. digital experience only is often yeah. separate from other stuff. Um, but like is, so like in, in my world, there's, I, I don't have the data in front of me. I should have grabbed it about sort of this, there's these different sort of go to market motions. And one of them that is pop is getting quite popular is community led growth. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, like a good example of that would be notion, right. Mm -hmm. Um, where they've got a very small sales team and the community has driven business. I mean, they opened Korea without putting any feet on the street there, their community 
brought it to life there. They did the press release. They did the opening webinar and all these things. So, you know, am I there not fully thinking about that the whole, or is that, you know, once again, is this like part of the, this is really great, but like, we're still, we have to think of community even bigger than that. Or like, how you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I just want to sort of bring this back with this community led go to market that many people ask me about and, and what your thoughts are on there. Um, and how that sort of fits into what you just said. I do think that people think that community-led is a brand new thing. If you yeah, are a community okay. manager worth your salt, right? You are ensuring yeah. that the community was involved every step of the way. One of the right. very first things I did, you know, even before my time at Radian 6, was develop the, the, the community for the Army and Air Force Exchange Service. And one of the things that we put in place was a community pact. We didn't call it terms of service. They were expectations, expectations of us that were holding that space and the expectations of the community themselves. And we wrote that in partnership with the community. We, we took the various steps to grow, to think about the future of that community and every single community I've organized since with the actual members. Um, and, and yes, there were maybe different levels of stewardship, right? Um, uh, like in my role or capacity. But at, at the end of the day, it wasn't it wasn't a lone person or lone team responsibility. It was something yeah. that very much belonged to the community itself. That is yeah. pretty amazing. I, I, you know, the thing that I've sort of struggled with on that is um, it's much harder than people think. It's yes, and it is. It, takes you know a lot of the things that you're mentioning along the way that it, re it requires a mindset as you know a sort of a, we're all in point of view in these things and so when people come to me on community-led i'm like you know i love it but like i it, you know i i have to sort of figure out if this for the right reasons and this a level of commitment for you to be successful certainly in some of the startups that you know we're seeing come through the the community did lead them through i mean they did it now the product was in built in such a way that it built a fan base and that so that you know i don't know if they meant to make it community-led or it became community-led <laughs> right um but uh you know i i am uh, sort of seeing this more and more i do i just had this as i was coming into this going oh my gosh so we get 10 people in a market and they're and they all want to be community-led and other community battling. I think one of the things you mentioned that I wanted to make sure we talked about was the decentralization mm -hmm. of community. Does that mean like we always think we have to capture them in our, in you know, in some sort of digital experience on our community, but actually we will, you know, we have to expand our thinking there. Is that kind of the idea? Yeah, and and this is something that I've really I. I I've, I've really grown into over the last couple of decades is that we we collaborate and we can we can communicate, we can collaborate and we can be with community and with people that's not necessarily within our properties, right? So it's us, you know, it's it's our responsibility to go to where, you know, our people are, our 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 various groups um, of interest, of place, of circumstance, of action. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean we have to have or own or steward those digital properties or those those even the physical space. But decentralized also means that there is shared governance. 
um, that it's, you know, not tied to, you know, those big, you know, social tech platforms. Um, it means that that we have discrete communities that are that are governed and shared over time and space. And we have to figure out the ways, the models in which to do just that. Right. It's big stuff. All right. It so is. let me, yeah. you know, I, the, you know, it's funny because I live in tech. So like when you always, you talk about digital and digital transformation, and I, I think I'm going to, in 30 minutes, going to be a cover at least some big things in your life. But I did want to ask you about that. Like, do we tie, are we once again tying everything that we discussed back together as you think about digital transformation for organizations or what else are we thinking? I mean, like someone always tells me, oh, well, the world's digital and what they really mean is Zoom, right? <laughs> or, you know, and you're not, that's not what you mean. And so I just wanted to, you know, while we have some time here and talk about that a little bit. I think I do digital by stealth, um, meaning that a lot of the work I do is around how do people how do people communicate, collaborate, and be in community in a much healthier way? And that is something that has been kind of the red thread throughout my entire career. And mm. yes, Love it's it. happened, you know, a lot of it has happened on digital. A lot of it has been wrapped around uh, transformation efforts where people are looking, you know, organizations are looking at their infrastructure, they're looking at um, their 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 complete ecosystem for ways in which they can, uh, increase their reach, increase their uh, engagement, um, increase their, you know, think rethink their business models. Um, but ultimately, I've always had the approach where I, I take a community first approach. And that means that we have to learn how to communicate better, collaborate better uh, together before we can even share and hold that space to do anything together. Um, and always looking forward, right? So it's how do we how do we look to the past to inform our present, um, you know, to to better prepare for the future. That has always been something that is a red thread throughout my entire career. The the I, I think I spent such a long time, especially in highly regulated organizations, pushing digital platforms through. Right. But it has always been for a greater outcome, not an output. And now I'm helping cultural organizations do the exact same thing. Cultural organizations don't have the time, the money, and the space to talk about digital, but that's the only way. Well, not the only way, but it is a major way in which they stay relevant. And um, and so it's taking all of those lessons learned, that expertise and experience from the, the private commercial sector and, and thinking about different ways in which it can blend with the awesomeness of the public sector, of, of what these cultural organizations can do. And, and so transformation is really, is really just how people are coming together. You know, what, how yeah, are they, well, what's that network? What's that ecosystem? Yeah, see, I was hoping I was setting you up for the perfect ending where you could weave everything back together. Okay, first, some uh, other things. So one is best background so far on the pod. Yours. Oh, thank you. Yeah, Thanks. I mean, if you're just... It's real. I mean, we're talking about these... <laughs> exactly. We're talking about these really uh, interesting topics. And it's like, well, she certainly reads a lot. Versus, you know, I there's do. a lot of people that read in the family. Um, and then 
you know, I, so that, so, so, you know, that was one. Number two is, you know, I'm, um, I'm just so intrigued by this, by all the things that you're doing. And like, do you, uh, so the one thing is, so we have the Cohere podcast, right? Mm -hmm. That's one way. And I think a lot of my listeners may not be exposed to that. So that's really cool. Um, and, um, any other ways for them to sort of continue to learn more? I never do this, by the way. I never do the pro because everyone wants the promo. I never, but on this one, I think there's going to be some people who want to learn a little bit more. And so like, what, what else would you tell them to do to, to sort of get into your head here? I do have a Substack called book DNA. You can subscribe to it on your digital tattoo.com. Um, and that's, it doesn't, I don't <laughs> probably a product for my radiant six days. I don't sell or promote my stuff. I, I, you know, do that work for other people and I am just awful at it myself. And quite frankly, it just makes me feel uncomfortable. But book DNA is I, I read approximately a hundred, 150 books a year. Um, and I map all of those out on how I came to those, you know, particular books or, uh, media, film and discussion. And I, I love to share that with others. I call it my my book DNA prescriptions. And so that might be kind of a way into kind of my thinking and oh, what I am scanning the environment looking for and really exploring. Okay, that's cool. All right. Now, normally that's the end for people, but I had this list where I wanted to end on one thing I wanted to ask you about. Sure. You know, the way that I read, I hadn't sort of seen you, I'm sure you're out there in a while. And then I yeah. saw you via LinkedIn and so I would love to hear what is LinkedIn? Like, how, how would you describe LinkedIn and where they are and how, you know, what is its importance in the world? Oh, I don't know. How candid do you want me to be? Be candid. Uh, let's go. It's, it's just adult performance. Like it's, 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 it's a show. It's, it's not where business is being done. It's not even where a lot of critical thought is happening. There's no back and forth. And even when there is back and forth, it's it's not as volatile as some of the other social networks for sure, but it it, it is a space for people to go, oh, look at me, look at the really great thing I did. Rather than what I would, you know, like is here's a challenge, you know, here's something that I've been working through. Can you connect me with somebody who's been going through this exact same thing? Rather than just kind of like all the flash, all the thrill the frills. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm on, I'm on there obviously, because that's, right. that is kind of like the, the last social network of, you know, where you can, you can put your stuff out there, but yeah, the whole, the whole space has changed so dramatically. Um, yeah. and you have to rethink, you know, your identity, your place in those spaces on what almost seems to be like a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. I like what you said. I think I would say, here's what I'd say is, the adult performance call was beautiful and we have to do it. Wait, we, we do it anyway. You know, it's like, yeah, we kind of know what it is. I mean, we're going to have, you're going to yeah. be on video cuts from this on there, but I, I but I do agree <laughs> yeah. that. And then I think about what you're talking about, like the quote unquote conversation, I kind of joke, you know, there's a lot of people just saying preach or like you, yeah, nailed it, all this stuff. Right. And then occasionally you'll get someone who, comes in and dissents and that sort of devolves into something frankly not very productive yeah uh, but yeah i mean look i mean for in my world most of the buyers are on there we've seen a ton of founders sort of 
use LinkedIn, but they are using it as a, uh, not necessarily as a community vehicle and more so as a place called performance. It's theater. It's theater. Awesome. Okay. So that was, that was, um, as interesting as I thought it would be. And then I've left everyone with places to follow up here. Um, but I do, I want to thank you. I mean, my God, I haven't seen you in so long. It's been great no. for the, to reconnect and it's been mind blowing to look at some of the stuff that you're talking about and doing. Um, and so I don't often get that opportunity. So I just want to say well, thank, thank you, you so much. God. I appreciate it. Now I'm going to pronounce her name incorrectly, but I'll try Caitlin Bourgeoin, B-O-U-R-G-O-I-N. Had this tweet that went crazy just for, as you know, as our fun thing, you guys, like she wrote a flower is just a weed with a marketing budget. And that she credited a guy named Rory Sutherland for saying that. That is an incredible uh, marketing quote. That's, what, a, that's a good one. What I don't do you know think of that one, Matt. Uh, I mean, maybe I guess I think uh, from like a, a a horticulture perspective, that's probably not true, right? Like, um, I don't. Well, are we have a horticulture conversation? Because I. I don't remember seeing that on Judd's list. <laughs> hey, this is this is unscripted. Uh, uh, I mean, yeah, sure, that's that's fun. I guess I don't spend a lot of time thinking about stuff like that, but I don't know. Like, like there's definitely a significant difference between like a good and a bad email, right? Uh, so like spam email is just email that doesn't have a good strategy, good messaging and a good brand behind it. So I think in that vein, it's probably the same. You're going to take this quote and talk about a freaking email, dude. What happened to you? You're a big thinker. Well, I'm just trying to make an analogy here, right? Like put it in practical terms, right? Like if a flower is just a weed with a marketing budget, like a spam email is just an email without a marketing budget, I guess. It's kind of like a Christmas tree is just a tree with a marketing budget. You don't buy trees, but you sure as heck do when it's Christmas time. Um, I, I actually love this quote for a couple of reasons. One, it shows the ac- absolute importance of marketing. And I think that's a, a, a miss right now, especially. So mm. I'm, I'll go there. Sure. And the other side is like, it, it's an interesting take. You know, it's like we, we literally group things based on our perception and marketing is really of trying to affect our perception. So that's it. Yeah. I get why it blew up. That's right, for sure. I, two to one. You and I like it. I'm Matt's, out. You, yeah, you oh. were, th- I mean, dude, one, you were thrown off by the horticulture issue. Yeah. And then two, you must have had a campaign rollout recently. And been <laughs> the fact that you went there when this is about, it's essentially talking about brand. It's like, uh, it's like ma- marijuana is just a weed. With the marketing budget, actually, oh. no. I mean that. That I mean, it is actually technically also just the weed. It's just weed, not no weed. <laughs> but it, <laughs> right. we we can go there. It is a topic. I digress. Uh, I digress. So we digress. But uh, I I will say, Craig, you definitely found a banger of a uh, of a topic for us today. Um, so you guys can talk to Craig about this one. But there was a post on LinkedIn by Sam Jacobs, if you guys don't know him, CEO of Pavilion. And uh, he had done a post around having traveled 70,000 miles and talking to hundreds of revenue leaders 
And he said that there was one primary focus of every person he talked to, which I found pretty interesting. And he said that the number one thing that's on everyone's mind all over the world, how to make outbound sales actually work. Uh, that's a that's a great question. I think it plays into a lot of things we've talked about, like the SDR motions, outbound partnerships and all of this. And, and Craig, you found it. So I'd love your take on this one to start. On the outbound? Mm-hmm. Man. Well, I think, um, well, I would agree that like we have an outbound issue and part of it was that uh, free I know we've said it a million times, but let me just, now that I've had this conversation multiple times, everyone took the predictable revenue book and was able to read it, go hire some people and go slang in some email and, you know, with the tools out there and they could literally fill their funnel with 20 something kids out there just slanging and banging and that broke, that's broken now. But outbound, uh, I would say the thing we need to think about now is, uh, we need to think about the whole process strategically, right? So everyone thinks, you know, everyone try to put ABM in a box, right? And actually they shouldn't, right? That's actually just go to market, right? And it's, you know, if we can, you know, one, you know, in many cases, when we look at an outbound program, part of the issue is just who they're going after, right? That's the ICP and the key stakeholders. Um, number two is, is it only the emails, right? Because that's the thing is like that we just basically let SDRs download out of Zoom Info or whatever they're using and just start going when in reality we need to, once we identify who those people and organizations are, they can't just be one thing. They have to see us all the time. And that was the biggest thing that I saw in that 10 years of, you know, rolling around town talking about account base was that, the biggest effect it had was on outbound, right? Because it, it because now we weren't going in cold and relying on the message. Instead, they were going in and they, you know, like I remember Nick Ezzo had a thing we had. This was in 2016, right? He gets up. He's like, my favorite thing is when the SDRs come over to my office and say, hey, I just got this, you know, uh, prospect. He said they just saw, you know. They took the, the call or the email because they just saw us on CNN when they're, you know, on that site or whatever website they're on. Um, it takes more than just one ad, but it take, when you do that and everyone's sort of galvanized against that ICP, then outbound shit does change. It changes a lot. But it's it can't just be, well, let's go, this SDR leader's not working, let's go get another and go run that same playbook. That That is just busted. And so that's... You know, that that to me, there is still a solution. It's just a more strategic one. I think some of the byproducts are one, I am now firmly in the camp that SDRs should report to marketing. A hundred percent. Because now we that the coordination just is infinitely better there. And also it's clean. Like we can go to the you know, like in in the case of Snowflake, right? It's like, we'll get you the meetings then everything they do is to get these meetings and it's marketing, sales, events, you know, all of these things sort of co coalesce to go do that. So um, anyway, I went right to actionable. Of course, it's an issue. It's a big one. It's killing pipeline numbers. Mm -hmm. But part of the issue is because we just call it outbound. We just do SDRs or we just try to enable salespeople to prospect. 
Um, and that that still, I mean, maybe you get a, you probably get a bump there, right? But you don't get the lift. And what we need is lift. And yeah. so, yeah, that's how I think about. It. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I I think um, <clears throat> so. There, I like I fall into two camps on this. One, uh, I think um, I think outbound can work even under the old model. Um, what I see is most people who do outbound just do it really bad. It's terrible. Uh, and I don't want to blame, you know, uh, companies for this because I don't think it's companies' fault. Like uh, outreach, sales off, they never intended for their tools to be used like Marketo. They, they intended for their tools to be used to make good SDRs better or a good um, – Maybe a better way of saying that is like a good SDR strategy scalable. And uh, but what has happened is like people are just like, oh, well, I just send emails uh, to people. Somebody writes them for me and I press play. And I mean, the type of outreach I get in 2024 or even in 2023 or in, in the years before that looks nothing like the outreach that I used to get in 2016. Nothing like it. It's single threaded, it's single channel, it's just an email. There were times back in 2015, 2016, somebody would call me, leave me a voicemail, hit me up on LinkedIn. And I don't mean just like through like a DM, like they're like attaching onto the things that I'm talking about. They'd send me an email like, hey, just read your LinkedIn post. Uh, I liked the, the parts where you said X, Y, and Z. Nobody does that, no one, no one. And if you say you do it, you're lying. Or if you say you're doing it like, there's one person in your organization who did it once and it worked. But like everybody's leaned so heavily into the like the number of touches, the number of calls, the number of emails. And like, you know, back in the day when I ran sales development orgs, that was never the key to success. It was never about, hey, we have to make 100 phone calls or we have to send, you know, 50 emails. It was what are the accounts that matter? Who are the people within those accounts that matter? How do we go start a conversation there? And that conversation doesn't have to start with, this is the reason why you need to buy my product. And this is why we should talk Thursday at 3.30. Like it has to start with like, hey, you're a person, you have a job. I understand that job. Like I've got something that you might find valuable. And we've lost sight of that completely. And it's just a sea of like, hey, I'm Matt from this company who does this. Here's three companies that also look like you maybe in that they're software companies. Are you free Thursday at 3.30? And that is that is part of why this stuff is broken. Now, I think to Craig's point, to uh, everybody who operates within the Pavilion Network's point, like I think there's also a lot of truth to the fact that even if you did that exceptionally well, it wouldn't work as well. You get You'd get a bump. Yeah, you'd get a bump, but not lift. And I think that there is a new motion that can be conducted within sales development, or there are new motions that should be conducted within sales development that are completely non-traditional. And they have to do with one of the things that I always sort of espouse as an SDR leader as to why engaging with people in social mattered so much or why email mattered so much in 2010 and 11, it was where do your people live and where are they willing to have a conversation? We all have an inbox and we all have a phone, but like we don't wanna have conversations in those places. So where are the places where people have conversations like that? 
they're different. It's less on LinkedIn than it used to be. LinkedIn is just a place for somebody to post something smart and a bunch of people to be like, you go, girl. E- echo chamber. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm always writing, you go, girl. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> but like people are having conversations <laughs> in other places now and SDRs aren't going into those places to have those types of conversations. And whether that's like subreddits or, or other communities, like that's where that stuff is happening. What's interesting is like in maybe 2020, 2019, we saw the proliferation of like these big Slack channels and those had their moments, but I think those died fast. Again, because like in a lot of cases, those those communities exist on a brand's term and more and more consumers, prospects are less interested in engaging with branded assets. They want to engage or branded asset communities or communities that are branded assets. They want to communicate in places where they feel free to have a conversation where there's actual real idea exchange happening and not just, well, go buy my product. So what does that mean? How do you wrap that all together? It means that like you just need to go exist in those places, understand the types of conversations that people are having in those places, and then apply that level of conversation, whether in that channel or through other channels to that prospect. And to me, like that's not very simple there's not a piece of software that helps you do that. And so it will be a long time before people actually move to that motion because it's very difficult. It's, it's, it's going back to the old days of prospecting where you just sent an email through uh, you know, your, your Outlook or you send an email through your Gmail. Like there's just no software wrapped around it. You just gotta be out there. You gotta be the bold and the brave. I love all of that. And I have a lot of thoughts and, and probably some deeper pieces here. But the first thing that, that came to mind to me is data is not a strategy. Um, I feel like we've created data driven salespeople, do the calls, do the things, take the actions. It'll just work. And at least the people I'm talking to is all of the numbers that used to hold are way down. Sure. Um, they're there. If they test anything new, it's super short term. And then just it, you know, assume it failed. There's not enough investment into brand. And I'm not talking brand sure. with pretty colors and, and and Matt, you know this as well as anybody. But who are you? How do you represent yourself? How do you talk about yourself? How do you talk about the value that you provide to your customers? And how do you talk about your customers and to them in a way that they want to engage with you? Because to your point, if all we're doing is I'm so-and-so, let's talk, you need my stuff. I mean, I'm sorry, that's 2020 to 2022 when people were buying anything because the cost of money was so low, not that way anymore. And then ultimately, I think that we have new ways to roll the motion out in like, hey, look, partner's gonna get even bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, if we're thinking about, let, let's, you know, partner components of outbound, you know, you've got co-selling. Great. That's a huge component. I mean, why do you think you need to build a whole new product when you can partner with somebody that aligns to make your product better? Well, if your product's better, it's an easier sell. And if you have multiple brands that have brand equity, it's an easier sell. So I think that there's a lot of misses on those. And then to your point, also the community side, um, people are still in, there's less of them, which I actually think is a really good thing. Um, the ones that are still around bring value and a place for people to talk openly. And I'm not saying you should hunt there, but you should know people. You should open your network. You should expand and have conversations. And great sellers, they've got gigantic networks. 
you know, they're always talking to people and understanding the, the environment that they're in and understanding the value that's needed. Uh, and I think that's part of what makes them so good is that's that, that curiosity. So there's also potentially hiring practices that might need to be adjusted to get the types of people for the environment that we're currently in, where we know certain types of selling is really difficult right now. If you can't develop trust or rapport quickly, you're going to struggle right now. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot of uh, of moving pieces that that can make this work really well. But that also means you've got to give the time. And I think this goes to both what both of you guys said on one of our previous episodes. You have to give time to test and find out what's going to work for your organization. Doing the old playbook right now, and to Craig's point right before, the playbooks are broken. Now yeah. what? Yeah. I... Um... I, I, I hear all the talk about partnerships. I hear it. I challenge it. I challenge it. I think in a lot of cases, like, well, here's what I'll tell you. <clears throat> partnership leaders at company A and partnership leader at company B, they want to work together. They're like, oh, we can tell this better together story. It's going to be fucking great. Like your app, my app, together in Salesforce, in the data warehouse, in whatever, in your ERP, we're just a match made in heaven. And like I, as a sales rep, am trying to sell to Craig. And your Judd as a sales rep, Craig is your customer. And I go, Judd, bring me in on this deal. Our two partnerships team leaders say that we should be working together. And you go, for what? And that's the reality. It's like, it all sounds great until it gets down to the AE who's like, I don't give a shit if Matt sells a deal to Craig, I got mine, right? And like, Craig also, let's say that we're like, you haven't bought from Judd yet. And I go, Judd, it's Matt. I'm over at this company, you're at that company. When we sell together, Craig gets more value. And we go, okay, cool, let's partner up. We're gonna sell both solutions to Craig. And Craig goes, oh, okay. like. Judd's solution works, Matt's solution works, I'm gonna buy both of them. And then he takes it to the finance team and they're like, you're gonna buy two things? Are you fucking kidding me? And then it all blows up. And that's the thing, it's like, partnerships sound so awesome at the highest level, like, and I get it. Like, I love our partnerships leader. I've loved other partnerships leaders that I've worked with in the past, but unless like, unless that there is a real motion that exists between sales team, that is all bullshit in my opinion it's just talk it's emails it's like a common slack channel together and where the rubber meets the road people are not actually helping each other close deals so like i love the idea i just don't ever actually see it working craig are you okay with me jumping in real quick i'm sure you want to oh yeah (laughs) especially the partner stuff um i agree to an extent i would say that the vast majority of partner programs are immature and don't work. Yeah. Agreed 100% on that. The ones that I've seen done well work very well, but it's a concerted effort and it aligns with a normal direct sales methodology, just tweak to work from a partner perspective. And if, if the two partners or three or four or whatever don't come together and align, you know, even just basic stuff like needs, wants, and, and don't wants, right? And understand where the value lies and then formal operating components together and build out your playbook so people can make it easy. No, the reps will do nothing. 
they have to find value in what's going on. So if you do it right, yes, the reps actually want to sell it because it makes their job easier. They're getting introductions in, which means they're closing more business. And how they work together is very well-defined and very easy to follow. And when they need something, it's already available. So there's not like, oh, wait, I don't even, do we have this collateral that I can use? Or how do I better explain? Or how do I do an introduction email, right? Mm -hmm. When all that stuff is handled, it works better. But to your point, the vast majority of partner programs are not mature. They take people who maybe they were in sales or maybe they've been a partner their whole lives and they just keep doing the same thing, wondering why they're not getting results. And it's not understood the value they're bringing by the CRO, the CEO, because they're not aligning their metrics with the standardized metrics that sales understands and speaks. Yeah. So I think there's ways to make that work. And, and you know, will it? I mean, if people really want it to and they put in the concerted effort and time, I think we're going to see the cream rise very quickly in the next year. Yeah, I just don't see the cream rising, man. Because I think it falls apart at a place where it's most critical and the AE just doesn't give a shit. They just don't care. They don't care. You'd be like, oh man, you give me this deal, we'll give you $100 or whatever. They're like, $100 fucking dollars? I'm making 8% on a $200,000 deal. I don't give a shit about your 100 bucks, right? Like, So I don't know. I mean listen, like there's going to be a lot of different playbooks, a lot of different approach vectors for how to solve this problem. But I think like you're asking and like, I'm not trying to be smirch account executives, like their time is precious to them. But like you're asking people who like don't update Salesforce to be like, yeah, cool, dude, I'm going to bring you into a multi-million dollar deal. I don't fucking see it. I, but I, I don't either. If you're like, I'm already in deal, I'm just going to bring you in. But if you realize that you have a deficit in your product and you need a partner, you're going to want to know, how do I engage this person quickly? How sure. do I bring them in so I can close my deal? So there's also variance there. Like, I, I agree. If I'm in the middle of a deal and, and this guy's like, hey, bring me in. I'm like, I'm going to close mine. Thank you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, like just straight. But but there are times that it makes a really, really important piece. Plus, if you really do align partnerships properly, you almost have a brand that unifies the two that can actually carry weight and get you more, you know, more value. So, yeah, yeah. Craig, I just Craig, my, do you have a pick on it? Oh, go, sorry, Matt. I didn't mean to cut you off. I mean, sorry. yes. Go ahead. No, Matt. I would like to understand more about the approach vectors, please. Thank you. <laughs> Approach yeah. vector. Uh, yeah, Perfect. you're you're welcome for that one. Uh, that's a JJ Carlson special. Um, yeah, I think like my advice here is like, yes, this is all going to sound well and good, but like, be trepidatious, be thoughtful. If like this is the approach, like we're all sitting here at the start of a new year. If like this is a big initiative for you, like the the thing that I will say is, partner people love saying yes to other partner people. The That's downstream it. effect of that is very, very challenging to make work from a, a, a paper perspective, from a people perspective. Like partnership people are inclined to say yes to one another because they are incented to have more partnerships with other people. It's mm -hmm. do you truly sell a solution that is actually valuable to that other seller or is valuable to you? And that's why the partnership exists. And can you actually come up with a process and terms for the end consumer that are beneficial to them because that's generally where it falls apart. Me and another person will have a conversation about, I will introduce you to that person. Yes, 100%, like that email's coming right after the call. That call ends, 25 other things are at the top of their priority queue and you just move to the absolute bottom. It just never happens. Yeah. Okay, 
one is the conversation started with outbound. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to go to that approach vector for a minute, which yeah. is. It's a good vector. Uh, yeah. And then I I'm going to go back to the partner thing. Cause I, I, uh, well, let me, let me talk about that in a sec. So on the approach vector. So one is um, everything we've talked about is, is really good and incremental. Like the issue is, is that tech companies grew by, by building volumes of pipeline. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's just like, even the partner stuff, you're talking like 30%, maybe if you do well yeah. on revenue and that's still good. I'm down with that. But like what we're, what we don't, what will hurt is like big, big. And like, so anyway, really quick on outbound. So one is the, the, I do think automation is going to come into play, especially as we test and, and go. And part of it is the automation of the SDRs will work better with a holistic view of our message brand, go to market and use cases and problems that we solve. Cause it does work. Like everyone's like, Oh, well automation, I want this 23 year old kid to do all this research. Or you guys are talking about them going into communities and stuff. It's like, I mean, it's good, right? That that's, but that's not scaled. Right. And so there is like, we still have this moment here where we can, use automation we're particularly we're going to take that it's going to take out the in the follow-up reps like the inbound reps uh it might take out sort of the volume ones and it might support outbound but also might allow sales reps to have their own prospecting machine that comes out of automation because at the end of the day one of the biggest issues for sales reps is the amount of pipeline they typically need to support the close rates that are currently happening even you know they they need they don't have the time so we're talking about time like that was the key thing judd is you said it takes time well they don't i know there's a bunch of people that accuse sales reps of being lazy but like um i I in this use case i don't that's just Mm -hmm. a lot it takes a lot to do all the things that we want them to do so i think automation will help there and i'm not one of those guys that immediately gravitates to automation but but anyway, I do want to mention that, and that will allow for the testing that Jed's talking about, because there will be consistency of message. One of the things on testing in the SDR land where we're giving them free reign is, uh, you know, you get one that works, you know, that's that works fine, but it's not as good as, like, if we're, we're sort of, uh, we're set up where the automation is looking at groups of very, very similar messages, similar to what we might do in marketing to be able to go optimize. But like, this is one of those things, you guys, and honestly, like all the research it takes to get a deal, uh, just to get in the door, I'm all in favor of it. But like, that's one, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just one. Yeah. And what, the, what we need is lots. Yeah. And then the other thing I'd mentioned, Matt, on all of this is like, as people start to move like you out of content being a conversion point right, where the key conversion point is a high impact offer on the website to talk to sales or do a demo. Um, you know, like, you know, that's a, another factor that has to go into it. And now you would make the argument to grow, to fully grow. We have to have components of outbound that work. Otherwise, like, we won't be yeah. able to hit that. Okay, and then on the partners part, I mean, look, I think, you know, one of the things we need to do, you guys, is to make sure that, um, um, that we uh, that we're 
I don't know, sort of categorizing things differently. Like, I mean, Matt, it seems like, and I'm not sure, but like, it does seem like you're talking about other vendors mm-hmm. in the coast, which I, I do agree is fraught with peril. It sounds great, but like part of the issue is how do your buyers buy? It's the same shit we've been talking about for years, but also how do your partner sellers sell? Mm-hmm. And like the only time, in my opinion, that that really works is when sales goes to the organization and says, look, here's what I'm hearing out there. I need this. If I you get me a solution like this, right, I'll be able to sell the living hell out of it. Then you're in a different sort of approach vector. Mm-hmm. It's like they don't take things where like, you know, the it's this idea that's brought to them by a BD person who has like just likes to make deals exactly what you described. It's much better if it, it fits into what the partner salesperson will make more money with. Right. Yeah. yeah. But like, you, you know, but that, but, but like the modern Alliance and channel strategy has cloud partners, which you've talked about, which are, can be really good on the, yeah. with IT selling. Um, the other thing is, you know, if part of it is product market fit, I guess, because like, there's a number of service providers, which is a different category, right? Whether that's like big five consultants or part, you know, the sort of service ecosystem. And it's like, though, once there's a sucking sound of those guys realizing they can get deals from this stuff, right? Then that actually becomes a really credible channel. It's, it's when it's our idea, it takes years to get them yeah. there. But like yeah. when it's their idea, it's a lot different. An example is, I mean, I'm sure you guys saw like, I think Neil had a deep funnel and I'd have to look up the data about how the consultants are the ones killing it with AI right now, because basically they're being brought in like crazy. It's been a boon for them. Um, and that's one where it's like, look, the tail will wag the dog. Like they're going to go, they're out there. They're going, we need to have an AI solution so we can go make a million bucks. Those are the best sort of partnerships out there. But certainly, and then just going back on the marketplace, the marketplace stuff, as you know, can kill it, man. If you fit into the narrative of what the AWS salespeople are trying to go achieve, right, then you you can, you know, you can make a killing in there. And certainly a lot of people have. So there, there are elements there, but here's the net net. Rarely, particularly at full scale, is that 100 percent? Yeah. Well, it's just another approach vector. Yeah. That's actually an issue. Because then we rely on that BD person who's got 20 years of experience, but we we don't know how to dig in and realize they've never done a credible deal. Yeah. Right? You actually, to be good at partners, it has to be all in everywhere. There's so many things. Like the product has to be there. The You have a different set of marketing materials. You have to figure out how you're going to drive demand and all that kind of stuff. And so that is a approach vector that can work great, but it's not a hobby. It's just the issue is they make it a hobby. And I, it's- I love what you just said. I'm just get, sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. But like, yes. Yeah. All right. Well, we got through one thing in Sam's list. One thing, though, and, the, 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 and this is just a, a, a little caveat. Whenever people say partner right now, the first thing everybody goes to because of our backgrounds is co-sell because it's the easiest. It's what we know. Influencer, referral, affiliate, like there's a bunch of different ways to go after this. Influencers can bring in deal flow. Referral can bring in deal flow. So there are other ways to approach it outside of just a co-sell opportunity. And I think some of those may get more volume and more 
more looks than they have in the past, especially now. Sure. Dead, dead top. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think what Craig was talking about from the park and our ecosystem perspective, if there are system integrators, if there are service providers that are looking for your service, like those are great people to partner with. Like they're having the conversations in a lot of cases, they're closer to the customers than you're ever going to ever be able to be. Uh, so that makes sense. The ecosystems make a lot of sense too, as long as you can you know, jump through all the hoops that a lot of these folks are going to require you to. And that can be a long drawn out process. But yeah, I think the thing that I'm trying to caution people against is like, there is this very unrealistic uh, uh, belief out there that like, hey, we both sell to the same person. Like, let's go work together on this stuff. And generally speaking, it falls apart right at the point of attack and then ultimately falls apart at the at the customer level when they're trying to get approval for two different contracts. So like these things have to be really, really thoughtful and really, really thought out. And you have to like my recommendation to anybody thinking about going partner is like work with a few and go deep. Don't try to work with a ton because you'll, you know, you'll touch these people, you know, a few times a month and they're going to end up not sending anything in your direction. Yeah. By the way, on the buy, the way the buyers buy, like my the companies I work with who are in robotics, you you can't, you you have to work with the service vendor in there. Oh yeah. Or you have to you have to bring one in. Why did I bring that up after your long rant where we should have just closed it and moved on? It's just I think everything I'm hearing here is like I think uh, the only pe- like you have to really dig if it's a good idea. The people have to buy this way. The other sales team has to believe you can help them, right? And, and like, there's there's these factors that I'm just like is is more important than it's just a good idea, totally. or that we sell to the right people, right? Right. And so, um, you know, like uh, I do think like early days, Bombora was getting sold a lot by Marketo salespeople. Sure. Right. Um, we sold the shit thing. out of it at EverString too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It made sense, right? Yeah. Uh, and then sometimes it's just a, it's a good idea. It's not, can you imagine right now, sales tech and MarTech partnerships? Oh my God, you can barely get the deal yourself. Yeah, exactly. They're all tougher than, than yeah. ever, man. Yeah. I mean, like right now it's like, it's brutal. I, I do but, like the people with service providers though, especially in MarTech sales tech, because at least sometimes they'll bring it in or, totally. you know, so anyway. Yeah, they, they will make, they will get pitched by you and they'll get excited. They might do it. But the best ones with the service providers is like they go to the vendor and say, dude, I need to start dropping, you know, intent data or whatever it is into my I'm getting asked about it left and right. And I want to build these partnerships now. We're yeah. good because they want to figure out how they can make money off of it. Anyway. Yeah. All right. Was that was that number one? Is there how about this before we get off, Judd, name yep. two other sort of questions or points that Sam made that you thought were really interesting. I, I was going to do that too. So good call. Uh, this, this one really calls me. And I think it also answers a lot of what we just talked about. One of his points is aligning your entire leadership team around this approach. So that your heads of sales, marketing, customer success, partnerships, and product, and your CEO are all talking the same language and using the same vernacular. Also aligned on how they're going to execute these things. Because I mean, I, I don't know about you guys. I, I think that Alignment is is what I call a pipe dream. Um, I think there has to be unification. I just keep using the word because we've been talking about alignment for 20 years and it has not changed. 
Um, we go into silos and people say you don't understand instead of trying to educate. So what, what do you guys think about that? Do you think that solves anything? No, I don't I mean, know if it solves anything, but I do know that it's hard to do all the things that are probably on that list and more without it. But yeah, yeah. I think, uh, I mean, you're, this, this to me gets back to vision, which is like, what are we trying to do as an organization? Like, what are we really trying to do? Like, um, not, we're trying to change the world with data, but like, what are we really trying to do here? And if everybody's aligned around what that is and the tactics that we're gonna use to get there, then I think that that helps. And I think most people skip over that part. Um, I th uh, so, so, so that's the place where a lot of this stuff falls apart. I, I'd say like, um, I know this sounds like silly, but like if you can get all the executives all talking, does the same language out on social, that helps so much. Companies right now are just like, their CEO's LinkedIn is like their best form of PR in such a way right now. It is wild how much like you'd look at that and you think it's simple and you think it's silly, but man, that is driving a lot of companies out of the like series A into the series B, series C space really well. Um, it may even work beyond that. I've not seen a lot of examples of how it works, you know, for billion billion dollar companies, but like for people that are growing out of, you know, early product market fit into the into stages of growth, like this is just such a big deal. The more voices that you can use to amplify that, the better. And I, I, that's just one tactic. I know we're talking about broad based alignment, but that stuff matters. How about what if we said this? You need this in order to be successful against any of the possible approach vectors you might run. Mm, You're really is, running with his approach vectors, aren't we? This yeah, is one yeah. really good approach vector. Yes. <laughs> no, it's actually a key element to the approach vector. Yeah. Too. It's like, but anyway. Uh, hopefully, hopefully, our amazing uh, podcast company, Ringmaster, is going to help us with our vectors and uh you guys might get some fun clips around vectors coming to you soon so jeez oh, oh gosh vector I'm gonna get a shirt. back my new punk band is gonna be called approach vector it's gonna be awesome. we're getting you a t-shirt and then you get some glasses just called approach vector like our own brand you know the truth is is i'm teasing him but i think it's such a gangster term i love it actually the truth is is i'm making fun of him while i'm going i'm using that no, you started so, by making fun of it, but like you gradually got brought in to the circle of approach vectors. Like approach vector is just killer. He, he, he wants know. to own it. You can feel it. He's pulling it back. So guys, awesome conversation as always. Everybody, thank you guys so much. Obviously, we've got amazing guests as always. Uh, tune in. Keep telling us what you want to hear about. We'd love to be able to discuss these things openly with you. And uh, as always, thanks for your time. We love you guys. See you soon. Two different Here's pairs of glasses for Craig. Two different pairs. Yeah, Two different I, pairs. I, I, thank you for noticing that. Yeah, it's my approach. Thanks for tuning in to GTM Unfiltered. To hear our innovative insights and strategies, visit gtmunfiltered.com. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Until next time.